You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here at Stonegate, and uh, gosh, I'm just so glad you're here with us today. Uh, I think that it is one of my favorite things we do at Stonegate, that we spend time during the summer to consider and meditate on the Psalms. Um, the Psalms, I often think about them as the soundtrack for life. You know, uh, they are so much a gift to you and I of like as much as we can look at information and we can kind of reason our way into thinking about God and considering God, there's also just that experiential side of what does it mean to also know our God is familiar with this human existence, that he knows the ups and downs, he knows the tragedies and triumphs, he knows the wins and losses, he knows the hurts and sorrows, he knows the best days and the worst days and all of the emotion that comes along with that. That there is space galore for you and I to be honest about how we feel and about seasons of life and realities that the Psalms are altogether acquainted with and give us words and even understanding of. And that's why I think they're such a gift for us. And I'm really excited about Psalm 103. Uh, this has just been a Psalm that's been so helpful for me over the years and just unpacking its implications and considerations for us as a people. You know, Psalm 103, uh, overarchingly, is about this idea of, of praise, of, of giving thanks. And I think for a lot of us, maybe you walked into this room this morning and that feels really hard, or maybe that even feels foreign to you. You know, you can look back at life in the last couple of years in a global pandemic, a turbulent economy, a country that often feels exceptionally divisive and anxious and frustrated. To be honest with you, I think some of us have even, over the last couple of years, experienced a, a collective trauma as you look at what life was like in 2019 and realize that we're not going back. That we co they're coming to grips that life is different. That even if old routines return, we won't be the same people that return to them. We've already been shaped and we are quite different. And sometimes it can feel like, well, what is there to praise? But I'd actually make the argument, it's all the more reason to praise, that in praise we find our purpose, and what we praise becomes our treasure. With all the changes we've had, with all the turmoil, with all the turbulence of society, we need now more than ever to be reminded of what doesn't change, or more importantly, who doesn't change, that our God's promises do not change. It is so good for us to focus, to put our gaze on things that are way above what's pressing and to see what is precious. And this world is constructed and architected with the daily pressures and realities of life to get your attention, to take your focus and to push it onto things that feel exceptionally loud and urgent and important. And sometimes we get so lost in our circumstances that we don't realize what is ultimate, what is most significant. In fact, one of the things I think if you read the Bible faithfully, you begin to see that God is much more preoccupied and interested in changing people through their circumstances than often changing their circumstances. And it, it's an invitation to almost back up and ask and say, God, am I just wanting you to change my circumstances or am I also curious? Am I also humble enough to ask, how might you be changing me through these circumstances? 
And so praise and gratitude serves as a gateway, a door into seeing with divine eyes rather than just worldly pressures. We begin to see what really matters. And friends, we often need psalms, we need songs, we need reminders to lift up our heads to get a little bit beyond what's most pressing, pressing and even to get beyond ourselves. And I believe that's one of the gifts that King David, David who wrote Psalm 103, is offering to you and to me this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along with us. We're going to be in Psalm 103 and walk through this passage. If you don't, don't worry, we'll have all the words up on the screen for you. And in Psalm 103, we know that David understands this importance of realizing and orienting ourselves on what's most precious rather than what's most pressing. Because look how he starts the psalm in verse 1. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do you see what's going on here? David is actually, he's talking to himself. He is, he is working, he is reminded, he is intentionally rousing his soul. He says, my soul, my soul. He's, he's saying, wake up sleepy soul that maybe has begun to slumber in life. And our world, uh, particularly America, the way it's designed is to make you pursue comfort and convenience. And often inside of comfort and convenience, a sleepiness can set in. And that sleepiness, we often need a smelling salt of a psalm that awakes us and attunes us to what matters most, to lift our heads up, to get back focused, not just on what is most pressing, but what's most precious. He uses this phrase in there too. He says, my inmost being, what an interesting phrase, right? I mean, how often do you think about your inmost being? Uh, this, is, this is your soul. This is what matters most. Not just your physical body, not just your fleshly appetites, but who you really are. You know, you know that, that person you are, right before you go to bed, you put your head on your pillow, and you have those few honest moments. Who am I? Am I lovable? Does anyone see me? Why am I here? All your hopes, all your dreams, all your fears, all your worries, all your loves, all your desires. You know, in a lot of my pastoral conversations in the last couple of years, I've seen so many folks that seem divorced from their inmost being. Where out of a sense of exhaustion and reactivity, there's this longing for wholeness and peace, and soul integrity. As I said a second ago, this world is so perfectly designed to choke out your soul with the burdens of life. That even inside church, we can do this so quickly. We can begin to think and preoccupy ourselves of what it looks like to live for God when we haven't even begun to live with God. And we back up and we actually pause and go, how is my soul? What kind of question is that? Is that even something, if someone was to say that to you, you would know even what that would look like to, to explore. See, our souls are sacred. And it is sacred work to rouse our souls from sleepy slumbers of convenience and comfort. This is important work. This is why, why David actually even exhorts. He's talking to himself. And you and I, we need to talk to ourselves a lot more often. 
And it can be embarrassing if you get caught talking to yourself, right? Like, you know, sometimes I'm in the yard and I'm, I'm just mumbling to myself. Maybe I'm like just talking through my day and my Jen and my wife, Crystal, she's like, what are you doing? You know, it's really embarrassing when you get caught talking to yourself. But gosh, I am the loudest, most frequent voice in my life. I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to remind myself of good news. I need to awake and arouse my soul and remind my soul to praise the Lord, to lift up my head, to pick up my countenance and remember what matters most. Soul, wake up. Remember the promises of God. Don't get swallowed up by the circumstances of life. And so David actually tells us exactly what this psalm is all about and how we wake up our souls. Look at verse 1 again there. He says, he says, and we forget none of his benefits. It is in this act of remembering. It is thinking about the good things. It is the constant returning and consideration of the gifts that God has given us that we awaken our souls and we keep them alive to God. This line, forget not all his benefits, this is the line that the entire psalm hinges on. David goes on in verses 3 through 19, as we'll look at here in a second, to describe what exactly these benefits are. What are these good things? What are these benefits that God has given us that keeps our souls alive and attuned to divine realities rather than just pressing circumstances? It's kind of like a, a kid on Christmas morning. You guys remember being a kid on Christmas morning, or maybe you see your kids on Christmas morning when they come out and they just see so many gifts in front of them. And their all eyes like bulge as wide as saucers and they're excited about all the presents in front of them. But there's also those moments when we have a word for what happens when a child forgets the good gifts that have been given to them. And what do you say to someone who has been given so much but just kind of blows it off? What's the word we use for that? Well, we use this word ungrateful. It's interesting, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing about the characteristics of, his present world, of the present world we live in. And it's a sad commentary on this world, honestly. He lists 19 horrible characteristics. He says people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. And then he throws in ungrateful. You know, I wouldn't have expected that to make the list of these other heinous sins. Why does Paul include that? But in gratitude for Paul, is it's right up there with all these other sins. Because once again, it's this posture. It's, a, it's an indictment. It's a reflection that your soul has been choked out by the pressures and circumstances of life. That you've forgotten the benefits that God has given you. You know, sometimes it's not until we've lost something that we realize how precious it was. You know, it was, it was interesting for us when the, the pandemic originally hit, those first couple of weeks of lockdown, when everything was stripped away, all of a sudden we found ourselves just talking in our household of all the things we missed. We missed travel. Um, I missed, you know, basketball. Like, why? I mean, sports was canceled. Everything was shut down. And this sounds quaint, but the, the activity we would look forward to every, uh, every day is we would just go out for a drive. Like, that was the highlight of the day. It's like, we're just going to go for a drive. And it, it, it was something that we became grateful for. Prior to the pandemic, I never would have been grateful for getting in a van with three kids and going nowhere. <laughs> but we were. And sometimes it takes something being taken away for us to make us more grateful, doesn't it? 
Friends, I would argue and I would, I would just put before you that gratitude is an intentionally and significant spiritual discipline we all need to be practicing. Gratitude is an all-out assault on the encroachment of entitlement. It keeps our hearts open to the wonder and aweness of life. You know, as our grandmas used to say, we should count our blessings. And as we count our blessings, you know what it does? It expels bitterness. Gratitude is often the antidote to grievance and grumbling. It is when we catalog our offenses and slights more than the kindnesses and mercies that we begin to grow sour. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the benefits I have from God which I should be grateful for and offer him praise and thanksgiving? Not because God is sitting up there with like a clipboard going, bless me. It's been, it's been 20 minutes. Bless me. Come on, do it. There's a quota. Start blessing. He's not doing that. He's actually saying, this is for you. This is so your soul is alive. You bless me. You praise me because it orients you on what matters most. It attunes you to heavenly realities, even inside of your earthly circumstances. So we'll look at three benefits, three blessings in this psalm that David does not want us to forget. Number one is unlimited pardon. Number two is unrestrained love and compassion. And number three is ultimate home. So let's look at number one, unlimited pardon. The first benefit to remind ourselves of is unlimited pardon. Look at verse three again with me. What does it say? It says, God who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Notice he forgives all. All is the key, most important word there. All of your sins, not some, but he forgives all. And then David says, he heals all your diseases. This comes right after he, he, he heals your forgiveness for a reason. Under the covenant of God made with Israel, so, so Yahweh has a covenant with Israel, many of the diseases are often an indication and a sign and a consequence of sin. So when he speaks of being healed, he's referring to the removal of the consequence of sin, which under the old covenant was disease. So this is all about unlimited pardon. Friends, have you, have you stopped? Have you, have you remembered? Have you reminded yourself that all of your sins have been forgiven? I mean, just think about it for a second. Have you ever thought to yourself like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to practice repentance and what it would be like if like God shot back to you. Sorry, you've used up your quota. You've gone too far. No more sin forgiveness for you. You've exhausted it. He'll never say that. You can't outrun the grace of God. Let me just tell you, there are more ambitious men and women throughout human history who have tried than you. And no one has ever been able to do it. It's the one most exhaustible resource in the universe is the grace of God. No matter how much you've blown it, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how big of a mess you are, no matter how many times you've said to God, not your will be done, but my will be done, God's grace is still sufficient for you. God loves you. He cares about you. And he's able to forgive sins. Look at verse 7 and 8. David expands on this. He says this. He made known his ways to Moses. He's speaking of God. His deeds to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the God we're talking about. David's reflecting on Israel's history. You guys know a lot of it. You remember this. Moses went up to Mount Sinai to talk to God. And meanwhile, the people of Israel were at the bottom and they just go, they go nuts. Okay. They just, they throw a, a party to end all parties. They start burning stuff. They're, they're smelting down gold. They're building a golden calf. They're just, they're going nuts. And God was angry. And this was just one of many things the Israelites had done to provoke him. You know, they had grumbled. They'd been ungrateful, as we were talking about before. God had all the justification and reason in the world to say, you know what, I might have got the wrong nation. Let me try again. You know, he might have said, maybe you guys can just go back to Egypt, but that's not what God does. Moses pleaded with God to avert his anger, and God responds with the exact words that we see in verse 8. In Exodus 34, 6, it says these exact words. It says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. Friends, if you want to know what God is like right here, right here is exactly what he is like. He is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. The word slow to anger literally means a long nose. Because when you get angry, your nose gets red and burns. God's nose is so long, it takes forever to burn. You might say God has a very long fuse. God has a long fuse. He does get angry, but he doesn't get angry in the way that we do. His anger is not to pay back, but rather he's angry because he wants to see people flourish. Also, his anger is not knee-jerk. God doesn't fly off the handle in his anger. We've all reacted that way to someone, right, who's hurt us or done something really foolish. Verse 9 says more about this. It says, even when he does get angry, he will not accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. God's not sitting there nursing a grudge. He's not sitting there plotting a vendetta. God has a long fuse and a short memory. And he's not harboring, he's not storing up his anger to pour out on you. It's already been poured out on Jesus. He doesn't keep a file of your sins that he brings up when it's convenient. That's what we tend to do, right? That's much more our move. We get into an argument with our spouse or a friend or a family member, and we may not get hysterical, but we do get historical. We dredge up old hurts and grievances, but God isn't that way. He'll not hold on or harbor his anger. Verse 10 says it like this. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repays us according to our iniquities. Isn't that good news, church? We live in a world where we pretty much expect people to treat us according to what we've done and what we deserve. I mean, that's how the world works, right? It's like if someone hurts you, you hurt them back. If someone calls you a name, you call them a name back. If someone, you know, says a bad comment about you online, you say a bad comment back online. It's a tit-for-tat type culture. But this is not our God. This is not what God is like. He's actually taken all of that wrath. He's taken all of that anger. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. 
Friends, one of the saddest things for me sometimes pastorally is to watch people who beat themselves up when God has already paid your penalty. Feeling bad about yourself is not a spiritual discipline, okay? It's not. In some ways, actually, it's a refusal to accept that the atonement of Jesus is sufficient. To say it's, it's actually been paid. There's no extra bonus points for me feeling bad about myself. <laughs> That's penance, folks, not grace. Aren't you glad that God is so different than us? Verse 12 says one more thing about his pardon. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. Let me ask you, how far is the east from the west? You know, it's a little bit of a trick question, because think about it. If you start in Dallas, and I just say, keep moving east around the globe, you'll never stop. And when you finally stop, you'll still need to go further and further and further, and you won't be any closer to the west. The point is, is that there's an infinite separation. The separation between the east and west is the same as the separation between your sins and God's view of you. That he loves you, that he's not trying to pay you back, that he's forgiving you, and he has grace upon grace upon grace. There is unlimited pardon for those in Christ Jesus. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, one of my favorite professors, theological professor, he'd wrote like this many books. I mean, maybe as tall as me. He wrote a lot of books. Super smart, more degrees than Fahrenheit. I mean, just incredibly intelligent guy. And I remember like I was in kind of that nerdy phase of like, I'm going to reason my way into relationship with God. And so I was like, tell me the most brilliant, smart, sophisticated theological thinker, and I'm going to go read him. And, and he, I said, so tell me, what, what's the deepest end of theology? And he just said, the deepest end of theology is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I remember at the time, I was actually a little disappointed. I was like, that, that's the deepest end of theology? That's it? I mean, they say that in VBS. We've got to have something better in seminary, right? And I remember him unpacking it for me. And what he said to this, he said, it is simple enough for a four-year-old to understand, but it'll take a lifetime to comprehend. That to push down into the deepest crevices and into your innermost being that you are loved will take a lifetime. You can hear it with your mind. You can cognitively get it. But to experience it, to live in it, to embrace it, to accept it, to receive it, to know it at a heart level will take a lifetime. And it will take a constant returning to that very truth. As the old sin says, my sin, the old hymn, I'm sorry, the old hymn says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. The cross is precious. It lifts up our head and it evokes in us praise because it reminds us of the benefit of unlimited pardon. Benefit number two that David wants us to see, unrestrained love and compassion. The second benefit we must not forget is unrestrained love and compassion. Look at verse four. It says, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. 
Notice the complete reversal of fortune. It's meant to show a, a broad change in circumstance and situation in identity and even experience. David goes from, from the pit. The pit is representative of, of death. And David had many occasions where he felt like he was in the pit, right? If you're familiar with the life of David, he ran up against often moments of facing death and betrayal and hardship and loss and even sometimes at his own making. And then on the other side of that is a, is a moment of, of, of a crown, but there's something altogether super significant. You can draw it out a little bit in the Hebrew. The, the, the word for crown there is, is actually the Hebrew word of surround. So just the way a crown surrounds your head, what he's saying is these, these, the, this love and compassion is meant to be seen as something that surrounds all of your life. That you are adorned, you are dressed, and you are clothed in love and compassion. It is, it is your new reality the way a crown sits on the head of a king and makes that their new identity and reality, what sits on your head and shapes a new identity and a new reality is love and compassion. It adorns you. It's meant to surround you. This word here for compassion is altogether interesting too. It's quite a visceral word. It's meant to evoke strong emotion as you understand it. In Isaiah 49, 15, the same word is used, and this is what it says, God is saying, he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. This is God speaking. God's compassion is likened to a mother with a nursing child. And uh, you see my wife uh, nurse all of our three kids, and in that moment, there is a fierce loyalty and protection and devotion and nourishment. Isn't that amazing that God uses that kind of language, that kind of descriptive language to show his posture toward us? That he nourishes us. He's got fierce dedication to us. He holds us close. That's the picture of unrestrained love and compassion, the way a nursing mom feels about her baby. What kind of compassion and love does a nursing mom have? And, you know, I got I to say, too, especially men, th this is some of the imagery that sometimes we need to be a little bit more comfortable with when we read the Bible. You know, sometimes we live in a culture where us men, we get very reduced in our emotional palate to often just thinking the only emotions we're supposed to experience are like hungry, tired, and angry. And there are other emotions, like, and they're okay. They're, it's okay to experience these other emotions and feelings and realize that our God's, he's wanting us to see these and to, to understand them and, and even to internalize them. I'm going, this is his heart for us. And if we're going to understand his heart, we have to actually see some of these feelings and their significance. David goes on to even expand this idea of love and compassion. Look at verse 11. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How big is God's love? David's saying, if you want to know how big God's love is, then look up at the sky. How far does the, star, the, the, the sky go? I mean, imagine David. David, living thousands of years ago, didn't have near the understanding that you and I do now when we look up at the sky and the enormity of the sky. 
uh, just like a lot of you probably this week, just, I, I've just so been enthralled by some of those viral images of the James Webb Telescope. And uh, the James Webb Telescope, they, they launched about six months ago, and some of the first images are coming back, and it is allowing us to peer further out into the universe than humans have ever seen. Uh, this is one of the images uh, that they released this week, and I loved looking at it. This is a, a cluster of galaxies. And to get a frame of reference, what they said, NASA was saying, is it's almost like if you took one grain of sand and held it up to the sky, this is what would be behind just that one grain of sand. This number of galaxies, and those galaxies, a lot of them that you're seeing, especially the ones that look like they're distorted, or they're, they're, they're plates, or they're kind of like fuzzy, those are over 13 billion light years away. Trillions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars each. And in some ways, when you think about it, when you stop and pause and think about the enormity of the universe, doesn't it make your head hurt a little bit? It, it actually, you can't even comprehend how big the universe is, right? That's exactly how we're supposed to feel about the love of God. It's so big, it's so vast, it's so immense, we can't even begin to wrap our mind around it. We can't even begin to count it. So just for starters, God's love is way bigger than 13 billion light years that those galaxies are showing us out into the universe. But it's that ceiling, that's that idea of can I even begin to comprehend how much I am loved? Paul reminds us of that same truth in Ephesians 3. He says, how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. We can meditate our entire life on considering that. Look down even further at verses 13 and 14, and, and God tells us a little bit more about his heart. I mean, folks, I hope we're getting to see the heart of God this morning. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. I love, and I think it's altogether profound, that God wants us to see him as father. And I realize for many in the room, that, that metaphor, that identity can often sometimes be difficult. Maybe we had earthly fathers who did not live up to this standard. But God is a perfect father. And he's characterized by compassion. And he's characterized by love. And so sometimes I think for a lot of us, we think of God more as boss than we do as father. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up pretty far from God. And I grew up around a lot of dysfunction and, and abuse. And often when I thought of people that were followers of God, what I really thought was more people that thought they had to keep God from being too angry or mad at them. Um, in, in some ways, I thought of it like these people, it seems like they have more of a relationship with the IRS than they do with a loving father. You know, like the relationship you have with an IRS is just like, I want to turn in all my paperwork. I want to make sure I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's so I don't get in any trouble with them. I just want to keep them off my back. I want to keep them away from me. And sometimes we can even slip into that mode inside the church. Like, I'm just going to go through the motions. I'm going to do the things that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to check all the boxes. I'm going to make sure that I uphold my end of the bargain with God. That if I do the things that I'm supposed to do, he'll do the things that he's supposed to do. Friends, that's contract. That's not covenant. 
Covenant instead is relationship. God, you love me. You're my father. You want good for me. I can trust you. I want relationship. I want to know you. And because you're my father, because you have bought for me a beautiful future with incredible inheritance, you can ask me for anything. And I'll give you everything because you've already given me all I need. It's what allows you to be able to say, like the, the incredible hymn, um, it is well with my soul. Even when storms arise, even when hardship hits, even when it feels like there's nothing to praise God about, you still have God. He's not the IRS. He's a good and loving father. He cares deeply about you. He wants to draw near to you. This is the father heart of God. Verse 14 says this, for he knows how we are formed. Our God's familiar with us. He's familiar with our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. He knows what we're good at. He knows when we've blown it. And it says he also knows and remembers that we are dust. This can be a hard one for me to accept. I mean, I, I have a lot of American mentality in me of like, I'm not dust. Uh, I, I, can, I can make things happen. I can, I can make myself healthy. I can accomplish things. I can grow. I can get better. I, I want to I create a great legacy. I want to outlive, you know, just my life. I want to push. I mean, all of these things, all these tendencies in some ways too of like, I've got to be able to do it all. How many of you live with that pressure on a constant basis? That you need to be all things, that you need to do all things, and you find yourself in the constant comparison trap. I think the Lord's actually offering you a wonderful gift of embracing your limitations. One of the most freeing and mature things you can say spiritually is, you are God, and I am not. God is infinite, you are finite. God is unlimited, you are limited. That's okay. You know, part of what it means to grow in your spiritual health and vibrancy and maturity is not just tolerating and stomaching, but embracing your losses and limitations along the way. Every single one of us is more frail and feeble than we'd like to admit. Every single one of us stumbles and messes up and gets things wrong. But I also think we are a culture of hurry. We are a culture of fast, 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 move, 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 get it done. Uh, one theologian and philosopher, he said this, he said, the key to spiritual life in America is to ruthlessly root out busyness. That hurry is antithetical to the speed of love. We are mortal, we're finite, we need to slow down. You know, the, the country music band Alabama said this. They said, I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I have to do is live and die. I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. One of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is living into both our potential and also our limitations. You can't grieve in a hurry. You can't love in a hurry. You can't laugh in a hurry. This is another moment to pick up your head what's most precious 
the people in life, your family, your soul, God. And none of those things respond well to hurry. Okay, last benefit that he wants us to see. Number three, ultimate home. Ultimate home. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting as you go through life, it gets so tempting to want to live more and more of it through the rearview mirror. Where you want to look back at a season or a situation or a place in time and almost overly romanticize it. Nostalgia is a very powerful drug. And in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a belief that your best days are behind you. But if you're in Christ, your best days are always in front of you. And what this is at its core, though, is a desire for a home, a desire for a place to feel whole. And David wants us to see in verse 5, he's reminding us how this desire will be satisfied. He says this, God who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is getting older. David's maybe getting up there in years a little bit. And God renews him with the energy of a young man. He likens this renewed youth to that of an eagle. And that's an interesting comparison. Why would he say an eagle? It's not that eagles live so long. It's not that eagles live forever. They normally actually just live about 30 years. But actually, eagles, every year, regardless of their age, eagles lose and replace their feathers. They go through a molting process. So they are indeed renewed every single year. David is wanting us to catch the imagery and the metaphor that there is a renewal that's taken place even as you age. And that renewal is not coming from how much you crossfit or how well you eat, but it's rather coming from realizing how is my soul in remembering the benefits that God has given me. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Like many of you, I, I, you know, I want to try to take good care of my, uh, my body and be physically healthy and do all that. But you know what? It's a losing battle. Age is absolutely undefeated. Uh, I'm kind of getting to that age. I just turned 40 this last year where now I, I get sleep injuries. You know, that's like that new thing where you wake up and it's like, I didn't even do anything and my neck hurts. And now when I go to work out, all I'm doing at the start is not, not like how much can I lift. I'm just going like, I just don't want to get hurt. Like that's my number one objective is avoiding injury. So I'm getting sleep injuries and just trying to avoid injury. But I'm thankful that what renews me isn't my physical vitality, but rather the Lord being kind and near and present with my soul. But why do I say this about ultimate home? Where am I getting that? Well, look at verse 15 and 18 says this, the life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. David's reminding us of how fleeting our lives are. It's like grass, like flowers. They spring up and then they're gone in a season. Someone once asked Billy Graham in his old age, the famous evangelist, Billy Graham, who lived an exceptional life, lived in 97 years old. They said, what's the biggest surprise in getting old? And he simply replied, it went 
so fast. It does go fast, doesn't it? Like James, the brother of Jesus says, he says, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then you vanish. And notice in verse 16, the psalmist says of our lives, the wind blows over it and it's gone. And this place remembers us no more. And friends, how do we know that's true? How many of you in here right now could name your great, great, great grandparents? Not many. But at one point they were present and they were sitting in church and they were probably in their communities and doing all of that life stuff and then it's gone. And a hundred years from now will be the great, great, great grandparents that aren't remembered. And that can feel like a sad statement. There's a part of me that almost feels a loss as I say that because really what I'm wanting, what we're all craving is home. A place where we can live, a place where we will be remembered and friends, this is what we need to remember most, that our home is not of this world. No matter how much we want to be remembered, in the end, we will be forgotten. You know, uh, last year, we were up visiting family, and I took my kids by the, the house I grew up when I was a kid, uh, when I was their age. And it was so interesting to me that the house had been changed colors, and they'd done a whole bunch of things to remodel the outside, and this tree fort that I had had been taken down and all that. And there was a part of me inside that almost felt offended. Like, I was upset. I was like, how dare you guys? Like, don't you know that I lived there? That's where I grew up. That's where I had that memory. It was this cruel reminder in some ways that the world just goes on. I want to be remembered, though. David is getting us down to verse 17. And this is, this is God responding to that desire in me to be remembered, for me to have home. It says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. You see, our lives may be short, but God's love is long. The Lord's love is our place. The Lord's love is our home. The Lord's love not only continues to our grandchildren, but it continues forever. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 12, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And he invites us, even in this world, even in our lives today, in John 15, the very next chapter, he invites us to abide in him, to make our home. Abide is just, it's, it's the word abode. To make your home, to get acquainted, to move in and make yourself comfortable in the love and presence of God. And so David ends our psalm the way he started it. Verse 22, he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Those benefits of unlimited pardon and unrestrained love and compassion and ultimate home. One thing this psalm doesn't tell us, though, is how far God is willing to go to make these benefits possible. Because let's not kid ourselves. These benefits, they don't come cheap. You see, God isn't some generous bystander in the sky who's too nice to demand justice. We're not pretending that God isn't holy, that God doesn't look at evil and want to see it vindicated or punished, that God doesn't care about justice. God cares about all these things. In fact, he cares about them so much and they're such a big deal that in order to pardon our sin, to crown us with love and compassion and secure for us an ultimate home, God the Father had to do something altogether unthinkable. He sent his only son to die for us. And the only thing we have to do to take advantage, to receive these benefits, is to embrace them as a free gift. Realizing we can't earn it, 
There's nothing special about us. We don't add anything to it, but we live in light of it. These benefits, they're free. And if you're not a Christian, today's the day to receive these benefits, to take them on, to know that you have a God who's trying to pick up your head from what feels most pressing to see what's most precious. Jesus talked about this in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus broke the bread and he, he looks at establishing these benefits, this new relationship where these benefits define our reality. And we're going to take communion here in just a second. And Jesus broke that bread and passed the cup with his disciples on the night of his arrest and betrayal. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Jesus is pointing to his death on the cross and saying, this is how you become recipients of all these benefits. Through covenantal relationship, through a boat, broken body, and through shed blood. So friends, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know which benefit you need to be reminded of. But for all of us who are in Christ, this is such a beautiful invitation from this psalm to pick up your head, to wake your sleepy soul, to be reminded that life is but a mist, but you have a God who's prepared an eternal home for you. And it's a free invitation. It's grace upon grace. Let's pray together. God, you've been so kind to each and every one of us. And it, for a lot of us, your kindness is that you've even brought us into this room this morning. That if we don't know you, that we've never heard about these benefits, that we've never heard the good news, that there's such a God who loves us, that he's willing to come to this earth, to die a death that belongs to us, to take on your wrath, to take on your anger, so that there's none left for us, so that when we take communion, there is no wrath left for us if we're in you. And Lord, would we all return ourselves, be reminded of these benefits, that we would not take them for granted, that we would not grow ungrateful, that you would keep our souls in a place of wonder and joy and gratitude. And Lord, would you have your way with us? We know that you are kind we know that you're near, and we know that you care. Pray this in your name. Amen.